Today's first reading is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 8a. This is found on page 720 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 8a. Joy of the redeemed. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The joy of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty grounds bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there it will be called the way of holiness it will, it will be for those who walk on that way Amen The second reading is taken from John chapter 5 verses 1 to 15 which is found on page 1068 of the Church Bibles. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, page 1068. The healing at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five coloured colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Amen. 
thank you, Logan, very much. Let's pray and ask God to help us to understand this well. Uh, Father, we, uh, I guess for some of us that's quite, quite a familiar story. Um, we pray you'd help us to see what you're saying to us through it. Please give us eyes to see, minds to understand, wills to obey, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we know that John wrote his gospel so that people like us might believe. Believe that Jesus uh, uh, was and is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing we may have life, eternal life, in his name. That's what John says uh, towards the end of his gospel in chapter 20. And uh, believing is important. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? Uh, you believe you have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. You don't believe, you won't have eternal life. But here in John chapter 5 and verses 1 to 15, as far as I can see, no one believes. Well, obviously Jesus believes, but uh, uh, certainly the Jewish religious folks, they didn't believe in Jesus. And I'll explain later on, but this guy who got healed, who got cured, I don't think that crippled guy uh, believed either. No one believes in John chapter 5 and verses 1 to 15, apart from Jesus. And uh, uh, what we can see in this part, I believe, of John's Gospel is uh, just simply this. is that question, what keeps people from believing? Why is it that some people just, it seems, won't believe or even can't believe? Why is that? Well, the first thing to say is this. Um, it's not because of lack of evidence. What keeps people from believing? Well, it's not lack of evidence. People are not uh, kept from believing here. Why is that like that there? Should we have a... Oh, no. Anyway, here we go. Um, anyway, uh, people not kept from believing here because uh, they're not given enough to go on. They're not kept from believing because no one tells them the story or anything like that. Now, and there are three key things we're told, we find out here, which uh, are a real help to believing in Jesus. And the first one is the record. Um, so what we're looking at this morning is an ancient document. It is a record of Jesus' life. We're looking at part of that this morning, written down so that we may believe, preserved so that we may believe, copied and translated for us so that we may believe, that we might know and believe uh, in the man who is the focus of all this. Now, we'll go into one detail uh, in a moment, but the first fundamental thing that we see here in John chapter 5 is that we have an accurate record of what happened. This is not a a made-up story. Uh, This is a record of something happened a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. You see that in the first verse. And we're not told which one, but we do know that John, in his gospel, records three other Passover festivals. They happen once a year in chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 11. This could be the fourth. And by the way, the reason we reckon that Jesus' public ministry was about three years long is based on these festivals that God, that God, that God does. And John tells us in his gospel here. Uh, that's why we reckon that uh, Jesus' public ministry was about three years, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, um, because of these Passovers mentioned in John's Gospel. If this is a Passover, we don't know, then there are four mentioned in John's Gospel. And uh, uh, this particular place in Jerusalem is called uh, Bethesda in Jesus' language, in Aramaic, uh, in verse 2 here. There is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. 
Uh, and that's a place where lots of disabled would lie. And the tradition was that when the pool was stirred up, uh, um, the first one in got healed. Now, that's a superstition. That is simply a superstition, which is not helpful for Christian people. We should not be superstitious people. We should make a deliberate effort not to get involved with any superstition nonsense, okay? So, uh, if you've ever thrown salt over your shoulder or touched wood, we shouldn't be touching wood, okay? God is the one who we believe in, who controls all things, not the fact that circumstances will change if we touch wood. What a nonsense, okay? So we're not superstitious people. And that was a superstition. But they're stirring of that um, of that pool there um, well we're not quite sure why uh, it could have been there was an underground stream and that, when that was flowing strongly maybe there was a little surge there and, uh, and it then uh, it started being stirred or maybe there was a gust of wind or maybe it was an artificial pool and someone decided to top it up and turned on the stopcock or whatever it was uh, we don't know but we do know when you look at verse 4 at the bottom of the uh, page of our church bibles that there's a superstition there and the first one in they thought according to their superstition got healed and there's a guy here he'd been an invalid for 38 years and not once had he been able to get into the pool first and Jesus comes and he heals him with a simple word Jesus said to him, verse 8 get up pick up your mat and walk and once the man was cured immediately he picked up his mat and walked if you haven't used your legs for 38 years that is extraordinary you would need if you had an operation or something you'd need months and months of physio and all the rest of it in order uh, to get you walking again and he just gets up his mat and walks And it's been preserved for us for 2,000 years, and we have a record of what happened on that day. And um, uh, by the way, uh, if you compare that, the Bible, with other ancient documents, this is incredibly reliable. I'll tell you more about that afterwards if you want. It is astonishingly reliable. And it's backed up time and time again by archaeology. So you look at a record, we have the record here. But then let's look at the pool as well. They used to say that this pool in verse 2 there, uh, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, they used to say, no, it never been found, that's just made up. Until a, a dig, an archaeological dig began in 1876 and they dug up the pool with five covered colonnades, one on each side, and then there was a path across the middle with another colonnade there as well. And uh, they dug it up. It's there. You can go there in Jerusalem. Uh, Freddie Bruce, who's uh, the one time I heard him speak years and years ago, he's a large and doer Scotsman, and he said this, there are few sites in Jerusalem mentioned in the Gospels which can be identified so confidently as this. The place exists. That should increase our confidence that what John is telling us really did happen. And then we've got the Old Testament. We've got the Old Testament as well. The best thing about the Jews is they knew their Old Testament. And they would have known our Old Testament reading this morning. They would have known Isaiah 35. They would have known especially um, that verse in the middle of it, verse 5. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. It's talking as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah that lame people are going to walk. And they did. This man Jesus, he arrived in Jerusalem at the festival and he finds this lame man who'd been disabled for 38 years. 
And he tells them, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And he does just that. That's extraordinary, isn't that? You know, if he, if he could bear his weight on his legs and been able to move him along for 38 years, but they can now, instantly. It's amazing. So what were good Jews in town for the festival? What were they meant to think? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? They're meant to think Messiah. They're meant to think God's Saviour. They're meant to think that this man is the one we've been waiting for, the one that we've been looking for, the one that we've been longing for for centuries. And yet no one in this account believes it. Now, what is that? What keeps people from believing? Well, today, there are plenty of reasons why people don't believe. We can see a number of reasons in this passage, and there are more reasons that people will tell us today. But let's look at the ones uh, within this passage. Was uh, What keeps people from believing? Well, it could be, for instance, career. Now, you could be thinking, well, I can't see career here in John chapter 5. But how about this guy, this uh, guy with uh, his problem with his legs? He's a career invalid, which in those days would have made him a career beggar. And there are some on the streets of London, even in Brighton, who you could say would make a career out of asking people for money. And they either don't want to, or they find it really difficult to change, tragically. And this guy in John chapter 5, 38 years, disabled, no social security, almost certainly would have been begging for a livelihood. And for 38 years, that's a long, long time. When I started in the Church of England, you had to work for 38, 37 years in order to get a full pension. It's changed now, but it's 37 years now. That was thought to be a lifetime of service in the Church of England. 38 years is a career. And in his way of life, uh, a disabled guy, that's what he is. He has his routines, he has his way of life. As we'll see in a moment, it doesn't look like he especially wants to change. And it seems to me that for him, it stopped him believing in Jesus. And career can do the same for us. We can say exactly the same kind of things. Well, I've got my routine I work at the council, say, I know what time I have to get up in the morning, what bus I get in. I know what I'm going to do when I get there. I know what I'll do when I get home. And I've got my weekends and everything planned out. That's my life. It's okay. I don't really want to change. I've got my career, my routine, my life. It's all there and it's okay. And I don't want to change. There'll be others who are, say, on a, a career ladder. You know, I'm going up the career. That's how my life is working out. I've got no time for anything else. I've got no time for Jesus. I've got no time for church or Alpha or anything like that or thinking about those things because I've got to do that next step. I've got to get my professional exams. I've got to get the next step up. I want to go for that promotion and all the rest of it. And for our unbelieving friends, sometimes career is something that. Well, we need to be praying about so that they will see the, the essential hollowness of that. Well, please, would you break that stranglehold that career can have on someone's life? I can't do that. I can't persuade people that way. But please, would you do that? Sometimes it's not career, but it can be religion which gets in the way. 
Now, Jerusalem in, in, in John chapter 5 here, it was awash with religion. In fact, it was probably awash with religion most of the time. But at the time of a festival, there were thousands of people, extra people came to Jerusalem. And it was, uh, it was actually heaving with religion. And then it gets rather serious. So you look at the end of verse uh, 9 here. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. In fact, it wasn't the law of God which forbade him to carry his mat, but it was their laws. They had 39 different types of work that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. For instance, carrying a needle in your cloak. For instance, uh, having uh, wearing dentures on a Sabbath. You may think that dentures are not something that you would uh, uh, be able to have in those days. Well, I thought that as unlikely until Paul Flather came up with this picture of 4th century BC dentures made of animal teeth and bits of ivory. That woke us up at 8 o'clock, I have to tell you. It's just absolutely hideous. I'll show you that later on if you want. But uh, anyway, uh, you weren't allowed to wear that on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to walk with a wooden leg on the Sabbath. But here's the thing. You weren't allowed to carry a mat on the Sabbath. And the punishment for this, if you were seen breaking it, in fact, if you carried anything from a public place to a private home on the Sabbath and you did it intentionally and you were found guilty, the punishment was death by stoning. Just by putting your false teeth in on a Sunday morning, or for them, on a Saturday morning. Jesus has given this man a real problem, hasn't he? And we see this, and we say, a wonderful miracle. The man has lame 38 years. He's now walking. Fantastic. But the religious leaders said... Who cares if it's a miracle? The Sabbath's been broken. They were like first century traffic wardens or that Harry Potter caretaker character, Filch, who was just out to get, uh, find someone, catch someone breaking the rules. Uh, their religion was dead and it was killing them. And sometimes it literally killed people. I've met no end of people who have been brought up in a dead religion, say at school. I mean, I remember school assemblies where uh, the, um, the master in charge of our house would end the assembly by reading the morning collect. It was deadly. I met no end of people who uh, uh, say to me, well, you know, I was forced to go to chapel at school. I don't want anything to do with religion anymore. Thank you very much. Or dead RE lessons. And it kept them from Christ. Because the thought is, well, if that's what it's about, I'm not interested. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them for one moment. But the trouble is, that's not what it's about. Religion can keep you for Christ. And for some of us, there's quite a lot of unlearning to do before we can learn Christ. Before we can learn what Christianity really is about. And maybe for us, as we pray for our unbelieving friends and this tangled web sometimes that gets, that gets uh, spun around us of dead religion, uh, that we need to pray that, that the Lord would untangle that in people's hearts and minds. What keeps people from believing? It can be career. Sometimes it can be religion. Sometimes it's a lack of desire. A commentator said, an Eastern beggar often loses a very good living by being cured. 
And so, you know, when Jesus asks this guy, do you want to be healed? It's the very same question that's asked of that guy in Mark chapter 2, gets lowered down through the roof. He was paralysed too. Do you want to be healed? It's a very good question. Um, You know, if you've got a career as a disabled person, you may be quite content. You may shrink back from this thought, oh no, I'll now have to go out and get, get a living if you go and, you know, heal me. And he could have even been disappointed that he was healed. You get used to that way of life. In some, t- in some ways, it is a relatively comfortable. If you've got people who can look after you, you may never be rich, but it's okay. And the trouble is for him, I honestly believe this stops him from believing. He doesn't answer Jesus' question. Jesus asks him the question here uh, in uh, verse 6, and in verse 7, he doesn't answer it, does he? That's not an answer. Do you want to get well, sir? I've no one to help me in the pool when the water isn't stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, I think he, he probably wanted to stay as he was. Lack of desire. Lack of desire. What's your desire? What do you really want in life? Why are you here today? For instance, what's your desire? I suspect here as a church, if we had a greater desire simply for God's, it would make a huge difference in our lives. There's a guy called A.W. Tozer, the last century, said this, or the century before. Um, I, I want to deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God's. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present, or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very, very long, in vain. So what's your desire? It's your desire for Christ this week. If this man had a desire for Christ, I think there would have been a very different end to the story. Pray that your desire would burst into flame. What keeps people from believing? Career, maybe. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's a lack of desire. Or maybe it's self-obsession. Now, look at verse 14. Now, what is going on in verse 14? Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse. Something worse is hell. This man is not sorted out with Jesus Christ. I really don't believe that he's believing. And he needs to sort out his Christian life, his spiritual life. And I think what's happened is this. I believe he's begging again at the temple. He can't beg at the pool because he would have been recognised. So I believe he's actually at the temple and he's taken his career to a different place. And Jesus finds him. He didn't know that Jesus had healed him. Doesn't try and find out. Instead, Jesus finds him in verse 14. See, you're well again, Jesus says to him. Which I think means you're healed. You can walk. You don't need to be sitting there on the floor asking for money from people who are going up to the temple. Don't pretend you're an invalid. 
and to pretend you're an invalid when you're not and to beg when you don't need to is sinful. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Stop sinning, sort your life out. Stop sinning, follow me. Stop sinning, believe. You see, this guy is is self-obsessed. It's all about him. Even in verse 15 there, he's blaming uh, or pointing to Jesus. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. But we're all, we're very self-obsessed, aren't we? It's, uh, uh, so it's a world view this day. I found this from a, um, you know, you have to do a personal statement type thing on uh, uni application forms. Try this for one. I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. When I'm bored, though, I build large suspension bridges in my garden. I enjoy urban hand gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookworm. Critics uh, worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening, etc. It goes on. How awful is that? And, uh, but that's the trouble. Our children are encouraged to say how wonderful they are. Life has become an exercise in self-obsession of self-promotion, isn't it? It's our worldview today for many, so many of us, for many of us. And when we're obsessed with ourselves, we're not going to have any desire for Jesus. Maybe we need to pray that God would break down our own self-obsession and the self-obsession that is there in the lives of our unbelieving friends. If you're so focused on yourself, it gets terribly hard to believe. And that's what Jesus wants. So believe. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Don't let career, religion, lack of desire, self-obsession, or any other blockage which gets in the way, get in the way And get in between you and Jesus. Instead, let's do what this guy called Norman Peel said. First thing, every morning, before you arise, say out loud, I believe. Let's pray. Father, we know this passage this morning is one part of, uh, of a, a big long gospel and there are plenty of people who did believe sometimes oh Lord we see in our world we see in ourselves things get in the way and we pray Lord you'd help us to be believers this week for Jesus sake Amen <laughs>